If you heard this morning, the Apostle Paul, in writing to the church in Thessalonica, he expressed his desire for them to abound, to prosper spiritually. And he made it clear that spiritual prosperity was very much connected to gospel obedience, to their heeding the commands of Christ. Now, as we come to the, the second part of, of this section from, uh, from verses 1 to 8 in chapter 4, we find that Paul is, is now going to transition from, from the, this general exhortation to abound in walking in the ways of God, to walk according to the commandments of Christ, and he's going to speak directly to them to those points which matter, points which are relevant for where and when they live. And in Paul doing this, he is not doing anything radical. He's not introducing anything radical or novel in what he's saying to them. He's, he's actually giving to them old truths, but it's part of the lordship of Christ in all of Scripture. It may be radical in terms of the culture, however. What he is going to teach them, what he's going to expect from them, what he's saying to them is going to comport with being a follower of Christ is, he, is they are going to have to be very different from the world in which they're living. In order for that to be true for these, these newly minted church members, for this young church, is they're going to have to learn the standards of Christ, what he teaches in his words. And so Paul is going to have to teach them to be to be pointed with them, to give specifics on how they're going to have to, to act. And I pointed out this morning that there were at least seven different ways in which he's going to speak in this section, this finally section, that he's going to say to them in this letter. And it says something to us about where we are as well in our church, in our world, our country, even in our city. The, the world in which the Thessalonians were living was a world in which paganism dominated. It was, it was everywhere. Those, they were surrounded by those who were set against God and all that belonged to God. I don't know if you've ever considered the, the word paganism and, and what it means, but it's an interesting, it's a Latin word, and it, um, there's also a German form of it. Some of you might have a different translation in your Bibles. Uh, in one of those verses, it says, instead of uh, Gentile, it says heathen. Uh, if you know, uh, there's a French version of it as well. That's, the word is barbarian. And then there's a, an American word. It's called redneck. Uh, and all of those are saying and speaking to the same thing of someone who is, who is out, of, out of place with the cultural expectations, with the cultural norms, with what's socially and even religiously acceptable. And so a, a pagan is someone that is, the, the translations of basically all of those, redneck is slightly different origins, but is all of those is of the country is outside the city, someone who, who doesn't fit in and hasn't been enculturated by that. But as you think about what, what that means in, in the world in which they're living, what it means in the world in which we're living, is you realize that Christians, strangely enough, are now the pagans. We are the, the, the country people. We are the bumpkins. We are the, the, the foreigners, the outsiders, the strangers. And, and this is hard for many of us who, who've, 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 who have older memories of, of a different kind of American. Again, not, not that there's any kind of false notion about how Christian America has been in the last hundred years, but there are cultural customs that are being lost, even when they weren't as consistently, as deeply and properly biblically rooted 50 years ago. There is a truth in which, in which the, the standards are being lost. And you who are sitting in these pews right now are becoming increasingly strange to the world in which you're living. You are weird and you are unwelcome in many parts of the country, many quarters of society. And nowhere is that going to be more true and, and, and more offensive with respect to how we view the topic of sex. 
And so this evening, we're going to listen carefully to what the Apostle Paul has to say. He's going to speak to the the church in Thessalonica, and he's going to speak to them about what it means to abound in God, to walk with God, and to please God, particularly with the call to holiness and the things which pertain to sex. And so let's ask the Lord's help as we deal with this, this important and this, this careful topic. Let's, let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, again, we are reminded and humbled about how much we need the help of the Spirit to believe the things which you say in your word. We need to be stirred up, that our eyes would be opened, that we would receive the light which you can offer, and that we might have the heart, the, the, the conviction to embrace and to obey what you say in your word. Father, we need help because we stumble in sin ourselves and we are so easily tempted and fall. And so, Lord, we pray tonight that even as we hear your word, that you would use your word to rescue us from our sin and from our sinful world. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Again, reminding you this morning from the the context, we we looked in those first two verses Paul is, is preparing to speak to this topic and one of many topics. And he's going to, to remind the Thessalonians, the Thessalonians of, of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And remember the way that he began the letter was in commending them on a multitude of things that were going right, that they were doing well, that they had been identified by in how they had responded to Paul's, Paul's missionary journey to, into their city in his proclamation of the, of the gospel in the synagogue and then to all the people and how they had received that. He pointed out in, in verse 3 of, of chapter 1 that they had been changed in their identity in the terms of their faith and of their hope and their love. They had been reoriented as a people. In verses 6 of chapter 1 and also chapter 2 verse 14, he, he, he points out that this newfound identity, this reorientation resulted in their suffering is that they were now partnering with other churches in this is that they are sharing under suffering. It has cost them deeply to belong to Christ. Verses 9 and 10 of that first chapter as well, they, they showed their loyalty by rejecting the idolatry that had possessed them before. They were no longer going to be servants of these false gods, but were going to serve the living and the true God. In chapter 2, verse 13, it pointed especially to the fact that this was accomplished because when the word was preached, they believed the word, they they saw it as what it was, the word of God. And over these things, Paul rejoiced. He celebrated what the Lord had accomplished among them, and and, and he commended it in them because he wanted to see this this kind of behavior continue on, this kind of separation and distinction, this kind of holiness, which was their new identity. We worked out as a lived identity. These things were right, and they were good, and they were genuine markers that they had been transformed in their person, in their character from the inside out, and they had been translated into a different kingdom. Those old priorities, that old world, that that pagan world in which they live, they had left that to be with Christ where he was. And all these things, this this was going to be in accord with God's commandments. It was what it meant to walk with the Lord, to be found with him, to be found in him, to be pleasing to him. This is what Paul had given them when he was with them. This is what Timothy would have brought to them as well when he visited and And this was what Jesus, who was the sender of the apostles, who sent Paul into their midst, had expected from them. They would live changed lives and walk with him. It's obvious that this is scriptural teaching. We we heard that somewhat in the Old Testament reading. We'll hear it still more. These were those who had learned to obey God from the heart. And they had learned to know God as Father. 
And part of that, and what was part in those verses that we, we saw this morning, is that in relating to God as a father, it, it meant two things. It meant that he loved them and his name was placed upon them. And it also meant that they were in a relationship with him in which they could please him or displease him. When they disobeyed, they would displease the Lord. When they pleased him as children, they would bring honor to his name. And when they displeased him, when they sinned against him, they were not less his children, but they certainly did honor him less. There was the expectation of Scripture that they would honor him more because of who they were, because of how they were, because of what they had become. And so that allows us to go into what we need to go into tonight as we get to to verse 3 of chapter 4 where he points out specifically what the will of God is, what their father wants from them, and that is their sanctification. Look back at verse 3. This, Paul writes there, he says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, your holiness, your set-apartness. And this is a universal biblical teaching. It's true in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 19, a different chapter. The Lord says to Moses, Speak to all the congregation Of the children of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. If you've identified with the Lord and you have been identified with the Lord by your being rescued and set apart to the Lord, then your call is to be holy like the Lord. And of course, that's picked up in the New Testament. We read about that in 1 Peter chapter 1 when he echoes that truth. He says to to those to, which, to whom he writes, to the, those of the dispersion, he says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. At the very beginning of the Bible, towards the very end of the Bible, the same, thing is, the same theme is continuing on. You must be holy if you're going to be a follower of the Lord. It's what the Lord respects of redeemed people. And it's interesting, even if you go back to the, the, the context of those, those, those books and those passages, we find that the book of Leviticus, we, we think about it as a book that is very much concerned uh, about the, the specificity of, 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 of the works that you have to do around the tabernacle as part of, of how God was going to be worshipped in that context. But that book is not an evangelistic book. It is written to a redeemed people. It comes after the Exodus, after the Lord has saved his people, after he has said, I'm going to dwell among you. Then he says, these are the terms on which we're going to relate. The house which is built among them is the house of God. It is also called the tent of meeting. There's an intention to fellowship with them. And as part of the terms of those fellowship, they're going to have to, to know how he wants them to relate and what his expectations are for them. Again, Peter, when he's writing, he writes, 1 Peter 1, 2, to the pilgrims who are the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Again, it's a letter written to the redeemed, and the redeemed are called to be holy because God is holy. These are people who have been saved from their sins and who are also saved into the presence of God to dwell with him and to be and to live in holiness. Let me take you back to the larger context in 1 Peter chapter 1. Go ahead and turn your Bibles over to, to that book near to the end of your Bibles. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Peter appropriately says, when he begins in 1.13, Therefore gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children. Not conforming yourselves to the former lust, as in your ignorance, 
But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Knowing that you are not redeemed from corruptible things like Uh, with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God, who who, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit." In sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. I don't, I don't know if you could recognize in that, in that passage, it's just the piling up of the Christ-centered references to what he has accomplished for you. That he has done these things for you. You have been rescued by his blood, this perfect lamb, who is everything that you needed to stand in your place Someone who would be your substitute, who would go to God for you and be acceptable in the sight of the Father the way that you should be but aren't because of your sin. He would do it for you. And because of that, you're called to live a life of holiness because you're so identified with Christ and who he is that you should imitate him in how he is living with that kind of obedience. This is the call to sanctification which Paul is asking of them. And once again, in, in, in back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse, uh, when, when, he, when he's talking in, in verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification, it is, is talking about progressive sanctification, but also in the context of what has been accomplished for them. They are to be a sanctified, set-apart, holy people. They are to more and more be dying to sin and living for righteousness. They are to be increasingly conformed to the image of the Son of God. They are to be filled with greater obedience and more purified intentions and and the ability to to more greatly resist succumbing to temptation when it's presented to them in life. Paul is being specific. He he wants them to know this has got to change you. You you need to expect more of yourselves. And and this is where he's about to get offensive. And how does he get offensive? Well, he gets offensive doing what, what Scripture shows people to be most offended by. He gets specific. You remember Stephen's speech before the Sanhedrin? Acts chapter, chapter 6, he gives this wonderful covenant history where he's just going through the whole Old Testament and, and everyone's just kind of listening in rapt attention and just he's going on and on. They're going, amen, preach it, brother. This is great. This is wonderful stuff. And then finally he comes to the end of the message in verse 51 and he goes into application. What does he say to those who are listening, those who are congregating there before him? He says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. It's a very pointed application. That would be painful to hear, but true. The response was not to repent of what they heard when their sin was pointed out. The response rather was to take up stones and to kill Stephen. Why? Because he was specific. Because he pointed to their sin. And Paul's going to be specific as he goes into us. He points to a specific kind of sin. We see it in verse 3. Again, look back to that verse. He says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. 
You are to abstain. You are to separate from. You are to keep your distance from that which involves sexual immorality. And there's two parts. To separate yourself and from that thing, porneia or sexual immorality, it, it is speaking to the kind of sexual ethic that Christians ought to have. And it, and it means, this is very clear from the teaching from the Old Testament and New as well, that it means a separation from any kind of sexual relation outside of the marriage between one man and one woman, according to God's word. It would include fornication. It would include adultery. It would include homosexuality. It would include incest and prostitution and rape and bestiality and polygamy and polyandry and polyamory. And it would include all kinds of transvestitism and all kinds of transgenderism. Anything in which someone sexually misaligns themselves from what God has declared in his word. And hopefully there's so many terms there the kids won't know which ones to latch on to and ask about later and I will have done you a favor. But again, we go back and re- reorient ourselves to, to, to what God is asking of us, that any version of sex that takes place outside of the honorable institution of marriage between one man and one woman who are eligible to be married to each other is wrong. And that definition is clear from the Old Testament. It's clear from the New Testament. It's clear from Paul's exhortation to them. And again, we saw that from as we read from Leviticus, and you could go to any number of different chapters from Leviticus and see how, how that's expounded, the, the distinctions which they are to have of the culture, which is very pointed that, that as God speaks to Moses to speak to the people to say, these are the sins of the nations. These are what pagans do. Those who are outside of the city of God, this is, this is what those who live like according to the flesh. You don't get to be that way. You don't want to be that way. I have a different plan for you. And it's also, it's also not only with Moses in the Old Testament, but it's a, very much a New Testament concern. Maybe you remember, you go back in the, in the context of the, the birth of the church of Thessalonica. You can go back and we can read about this. And in, in, Acts, six, in Acts 16, um, when, when Paul receives the, the Macedonian call, which is going to bring him first to, Thessalon, first to, to Philippi and then to Thessalonica, where he's going to preach, he's going to establish churches, it's, People are going to be converted and they're going to congregate together. They're going to identify with Christ. They're going to take on those marks of the church. We know the context for that, but we also know what happens right before that. Turn your Bibles back to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, we find that first and most famous general assembly. Paul had been called to Jerusalem to report on the matter of Gentile conversions. He is giving a glorious report what's happened on his previous missionary journey. And he's further speaking about how they're, they're, they're going to be assimilated into the faith. And this is the, the great concern of that council. What is the right way to receive these who have formerly been pagans, these who are non-Jews, non-Israelites? How do they come into, into relationship with the people of God? And they give this, after much discussion, they give this, this famous decree in Acts 15, 24. They say there, since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words and settling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same thing by word of mouth. Then in verse 28, the key verses. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, 
from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep your, yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. Paul has, has heard the, the, the mission on which he has been sent. He has listened to this, this decree, which was the decree of the Holy Spirit. And he is obeying that and taking this message to the church in Thessalonica. That which comported with the Old Testament law, that which Leviticus spoke, he is saying the same thing. And he can't do less than that because it is the word of God. It is what the Holy Spirit is teaching. And so Paul is not going to soften his position in the least when he speaks to the culture. He doesn't go in suggesting just a little more self-control, a little more moderation in how you sort of engage with the culture. He doesn't make any allowance saying, you know, men have certain needs and they need to meet those needs. He doesn't say that you can make certain allowances for people that you've previously dehumanized because you've, you've, you've captured them in war. They, they belong to you as a slave or they're only a mere prostitute, not somebody like a real human being. He doesn't allow for anything less than that absolute sexual purity between a man and a wife in marriage. And he places the burden firmly on the individual. Each individual in the church, there's no one accepted from it, but he makes sure it's individually understood. And again, this was not Paul's preference. This was what the Holy Spirit was commanding him to teach. It's what was required for new churches coming into the body of Christ that they would know these teachings. These were vital. You can't continue to be an idolater. We're not going to... We're not going to uh, consume things in which the, the blood is still in them because the, the blood belongs to the Lord. And we're not going to be sexual immoral like the people around us. We're not going to engage in these pagan activities. And Paul consistently teaches this wherever he goes. You, and you can read about it in Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians. In every one of these letters, he is addressing these very topics. This was God's will for them and is God's will for you. Look back in the verses, chapter Four, verses 4 and 5, he, he, he has given you the, the, this, this, this put off saying that this is something that can't be a part of your life, but he's also going to give a put on. And the put on is this, in verse 4 he says that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Here again, Paul distinguishes what it means to abstain from sexual Immorality. It means a separation, not living like the Gentiles. But, but, but what positively does it mean? And he, and he says something here that, that's uh, it's a debated verse. That there's, there's some disagreement on, on what this verse means. I'm going to solve this problem for you tonight. So you just, just wait for it. I'm going to get to an answer and you're going you're gonna to walk away very satisfied. There are two key words in verse 4. The, the, the word to possess and also the word vessel, his own vessel which is to be possessed in sanctification and honor. And, and these are two words that, that have a, a, a sort of a range of meanings, not like a huge range of meanings, but just different ways in which they can be read. Uh, the word uh, possess is a word that can mean to control, or it can also mean to acquire. It tends to have sort of the meaning of, of uh, more frequently perhaps of that which is purchased, but certainly can mean also getting control of something by, what, by taking it to yourself. Luke 21, 19, Christ is speaking about how disciples will endure tribulation, which is to come. And he says it's by your patience, that, that by patience you possess your souls, or that you gain your lives. And there's a sense of that, that someone can, can have possession in that sense, but there's also the sense of acquiring something as well. And the second word there, vessel, is, is one that's, that speaks to an instrument that is 
used for accomplishing some kind of work. And that could refer to a human body as a vessel from which work is done, but it could also refer to a wife. And again, probably wives aren't thinking they like the idea of this being possessed and acquired. But in, in, the, in this context, it would make sense. And, and we see a, a similar verse that would sort of speak in that direction, 1 Peter 3, 7. Peter writes, Husbands, likewise dwell with them, with your wives, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. And so there, there are essentially two readings of verse 4. It could be that it would be an answer to sexual immorality would be to get control of your own body, your own vessel, to, to, to master, to, 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 to dominate, to make it do what you want it to do. And the other, in verse, the other option with verse 4 is that the answer to sexual immorality is to acquire a wife. And so here's how we will decide this. We don't have to decide this. The good thing is for the Thessalonians, they probably knew the answer to this. But the answer for us that you can rest happily and securely in, and this is the point I want to make, is that these are both biblical answers for us. They're they're biblical answers because Scripture teaches these things. And and, and I want to show you these. First off, the Bible gives us the, the biblical answer of the advantage of a wife. And of course, starts in Genesis chapter 2. In, in one verse, we have both problem and solution presented. Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. That would certainly make sense of that. But then Paul makes even more sense for us if you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He tells us very clearly, verse, chapter 7, verse 2. He says, Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband he goes on in verse 8 he says but I say to the unmarried and to the widows it is good for them to remain even as I am but if they cannot exercise self-control let them marry for it is better to marry than to burn with passion so clearly scripture teaches old and new testament that 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 part of the solution to sexual immorality part of the answer to resisting succumbing to this kind of temptation which is so grievous to the Lord is to marry to have a proper, biblical, honorable outlet according to God's design in marriage. But that's not the only solution. The other way to read this verse and the other thing that is equally biblical is that this is a call to self-control. In addition to the teaching of the Jerusalem Council, which we read from Acts 15 just a few moments ago, we have Paul's repeated emphasis in his writing. He, he wants to, to, to address this over and over. And you could look at one example in Ephesians 5.3. Paul, in his, his commandments, he says, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for the saints. He's speaking to, to, to the holy ones, and he's saying that this, this can't be a part of your life. You must deal with that. And if you're, if you're a single person, I would recommend some serious study in, in this particular passage. Ephesians 5, 1-21, and also taking note that Ephesians 5, 1-21 is leading towards 22, which is the address to husbands and wives in marriage. And again, I can't expound all of it, but in, in that chapter 5, this con- the, the, the context in which Paul makes that statement, Paul's going to exhort Christians to walk in sacrificial love. He's going to say, this is what it means to follow Christ. You're going to walk by sacrificing yourself for the benefit of other people. That's your expression of love. He's going to call you to resist deceivers, which is certainly a problem with the the sexual ethic in our culture. Is there a multitude of deceivers that are saying, walk in this way. This is good for you. This is to be celebrated. 
He's going to command to walk as children of the Father and children of light, and to walk according to the Spirit, to have no fellowship with darkness, to redeem the time and the evil days in which you live. All of that is chapter 5. He's also going to exhort to keep yourself from drunkenness and to go worship with God's people, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, grace in your hearts. In a word, those things are how you direct yourself, how you exercise control over your vessel, how you use it as the instrument for which it is meant, which is to glorify God. Colossians 3.5, Paul likewise says, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And again, that's a passage I would recommend that you study in its context. Because there he's going to tell us to set your mind on things above. That is an exercise of self-control. He's going to say, put on the new man. He's going to remind you that Christ is all in all. And again, this is, this is how we move towards using our body for God's glory. And then one, one more exhortation from Paul. And it's what he writes in a personal charge to, to Timothy. It's in Paul's closing letter. The last letter he's going to write before he is going to, to suffer his death of martyrdom. He's writing this to a pastor and he says in 2 Timothy 2, verse 21, he says, Therefore... If anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful to the master, prepared for every good work. And immediately he says, flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. He gives this wonderful direction that says, this is how to use your vessel. This is how to use you to glorify God. You have to turn away from this and you have to pursue, you have to chase after righteousness and faith and love. And you have to do it with relationships with the body of Christ. Immersing yourself in the life of of the body, the, the friendship, the encouragement, the example and the accountability. The result ought to be manifest holiness. The distinction from believers as Paul, uh, from unbelievers as Paul says in Verse 5, not in passion of lust like the heathen who do not know God. And again, this is a reminder that, that, that sexual immorality is, is, a, is, a, is a tip to ungodliness, to ignorance, to atheism, to de- the denying of God. It's saying, I'm going to live as if the Lord doesn't care about what I do with my body. That I can do whatever, however, with whomever, whenever. And again, it doesn't matter. And it completely denies who you are as one who is created in the image of God. Paul going to remind them that, that they can't act in passion of lust like the Gentiles because that's not who they are. They have a different identity. They used to be that. This is what, how they used to live in their culture. They used to be like the people around them, using prostitutes, using their slaves, engaging in homosexual behavior, committing adultery and all, all other manner of sin. All of that was going on among them, but they heard the word of the cross. They heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Spirit came into them and gave them a power over sin. And so they can no longer be governed by their passions, by their lusts, by their desires. They can't walk in those ways. The Spirit of God is now their governor, not their culture, not their peers, not their own fleshly desires. Those things don't have control, but the Spirit of God dwelling in them. Well, as we turn and we look in verses 6 and 7, Paul gives an additional motivation to them and in embracing this ethic and setting themselves apart from the culture in this way, he tells them it's so that no one should take take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter 
because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. He's reminding them that, that sexual sin is not a private sin. That it deeply offends the community in which you live. It crosses boundaries, especially that boundary of marriage between a man and his wife. And it exploits another human soul, another image bearer, turning that, that person who has made the image of God into an object for self-gratification. It is the ultimate in idolatry. Instead of, instead of honoring another person, instead of loving your neighbor, instead of seeking to serve and sacrifice yourself for them, it says, I'm going to exploit you and use you for me. And it is a destroyer of communities, it's a disruptor of, of families, and it's certainly a wrecker of human souls. Nothing is more destructive. God gives this call and he's not, he's not changing his tune. Paul can't then either because it's the word of God from the Old Testament, from the New Testament. It's the word of Christ. Genesis or Leviticus or anything that the apostles teach. He had to call to repentance. He had to warn them against the cesspool of the culture in which they were living. He had to show them that following Christ meant a change in their lives and a lived out holiness so that they could no longer walk in that way, but they had to walk according to the example of Christ. And Paul was gentle among them as a nursing, as a nursing mother nourishes her children and cherishes them. But even with his gentleness, he spoke with clarity and conviction. He believed this was the right way in which to walk. And compromise was not a possibility here. Lastly, as a clarification, to make sure that they understood, he says, Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who has also given us his Holy Spirit. It's a sort of a, a formula that, that he gives you there for understanding this word. If, you, if you're struggling with this, you're thinking, That's, this is too high a standard. He's saying, people who have the Spirit of God in them, who have been purchased by the blood of Christ and transformed by the work of Christ, who have become the home of Christ and the Spirit of God, is they're going to hear the word. They're going to receive it and believe it and act in obedience toward it. He's saying that this word is not just a code of ethics embedded in an ancient text. He's saying this is personal with a capital P. This is about God who knows you, and who knows you better than anyone knows you, who knows you better than you know yourself, and who is telling you this is the way to go. This is the path of pleasing me, and this is a path of being blessed by me. This is how you enjoy all the blessings and benefits of being my child. This is where the good stuff is, is by restricting yourself and saying no to ungodliness and, and passions and giving yourself to obedience to Christ. And that should, that should sing to us that the Lord loves us and he's speaking this word to us and he wants us to know this. And it should sing louder than any voice that you're hearing in the culture. That you would say, I want this. I want what he has. I want to be free from that. To not live in bondage to that sin because I have been set free. That should speak to us. And that should speak to, our, to how we respond to this, this passage. There is a call for moral clarity in this text. And even for, for, for evaluating the current culture among Christians and, and how the sexual ethics that they've developed, how much they have slipped and given themselves over to the culture. To think about the things that not only that, that we see in, in, 
in, in media and, and in, in advertising, uh, what's being promoted in, in all the various formats that we can, we can face, and all the, the messages that are sent to us that are endorsing different kinds of sexual perversions, of course that's out there. But when the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is saying, well, maybe this is not that bad. Maybe if it is a, a loving, committed relationship, I mean, not actual marriage, but loving and committed, then it's okay. Or maybe if two people really love each other, even if, if they're the, the, the same gender, that's, that's all right. Or, or if someone is struggling in this way and it's just really hard for them to function this way in the world, to let them switch their orientation in a different way so that it makes the world easier to live in. And Christians are saying, you know, it's just hard to say no to that. And some of these are just really nice people. And man, you look bad when you say negative things about people that are living life that way. It seems good and it seems pleasant and it seems desirable to make one wise, doesn't it? You've heard that before, right? That was the original sin. That, that was what, what Eve saw. All, all these things, it's like, yeah, I, I see it now. This isn't so bad. And she made a choice, and her husband made a choice, and, and they succumbed to that and, and plunged us all into the ruin and the destruction, the disorientation in which we live. And of course, we live in a world in which things are broken and don't function the way they ought to. And people suffer the way they do and are confused how they are. But we as believers are called to live and to think differently. Yes, we are bound to continue to love our neighbors because they are made in the image of God, however they are acting. And we're to have compassion on those who are in bondage to the devil, who are bound to their sin and who, who, are, who, are, who are, have a broken existence in this world. And we're to encourage and comfort those who have fallen, who have succumbed to sin, and to remind them of how great the gospel of it is, of how much Christ has accomplished, that even those sins have been paid for by his sacrifice. But we cannot make peace with sexual sin. It's not an option. Not in any sense, not in any way are we allowed to say this is okay, this is acceptable. Young men, I especially, I would speak to you, this is a word to you. We know it's hard. We know this is not a problem that exclusively belongs to you, but you are in a hard time in life. And again, young women, you have problems as well. It's not easy in the culture and the way that you're being fed on these things. No, no surprises there. But again, remind yourself that God has a plan. It's an old plan. Back in the beginning, Genesis 2.18. It's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper comparable to him. And again, you might be thinking, Scotty, I want that. It's just not available for me. But think about this. How many things in your life are worth working and waiting for? If you want money, a house, a food, friends, you want to enjoy enjoyable things in this world, you know for most of those things you have to make sacrifices. You have to do work. You have to accomplish something to, to, to do those. If you won't work, you shouldn't eat, Paul says. And there's a, there's a similar exhortation when you think about pursuing marriage that it's something that is going to take work you need to get a job move yourself into play i know you're, some of you are young and, but move yourself towards that as you wait patiently on that and there's another part of it is be discontent with yourself don't look at yourself and say i'm great the way i am again the world is saying that all the time they preach that message so much just accept yourself as you are they, i don't know why that that's the message but they, they love that message and the message from the Word of God is you're not that great. You need some work. You need to make progress and move in a good direction, and you should be doing that. And that's not, that's not Jordan Peterson's self-help stuff. 
that says, you know, make yourself something and then you'll, you know, you get a wife and good things will happen to you. There's, there's, there's truth in that, but this is biblical. Turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. Following that, that passage that, that those young men just stood up here and they just heard as they, they, they made their vows public before the body of Christ. In that same passage, if you, if you move in 1 John chapter 2 down to verse 13, you, you, find, you find John making the, the, these, these triple exhortations doubly is what he's doing. It's not long, but it's helpful. He says in 1 John 2.13, 2, I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you little children because you have known the father. Again, in verse 14, he says, I have written to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. And again, he says, I have written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the wicked one. You are more than what you might think. Though you may be young, you are declared strong because the word of God abides in you, because the spirit of God is at work in you. You are more than that weakness that you have shown. You already have the victory. You have overcome the wicked one. It's who you are by identifying with Christ who has won the victory, that victory belongs to you as well. And he says, so walk in it, live in it, live that kind of life. And then finally we'll say this, that that, that sexual sanctification, sexual purity is not the only part of of sanctification, but it is very preciously close to the center. Again, I would point you to a couple of texts. One that I would point you to is, is the book of Leviticus. These poor college plus kids that are hearing Leviticus so much and they're getting more of it. As if Dr. Morales didn't do enough for the world in this area. But you find in the book of Leviticus a pressing concern for sexual restraint. It is there on a multitude of pages. And it's interesting where you find it. One of the places I, that, that I remember taking note of this is that it's especially emphasized in chapter 15. Where it talks about a bunch of icky stuff in there of, 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 of bodily functions that are related to our sexual parts. That's, that, that's what proceeds coming into the Day of Atonement, chapter 16, which is the center and the focus of the book. And then immediately on the other side of it, we find just after a discussion of blood, we have a discussion in chapter 18 on sexual ethics, about sexual purity. You know that Hebrew, it, 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 when it wants to emphasize something, it tends to do it at the center of construction. Kind of poetically, it draws your eyes towards the center where the Day of Atonement is. But the thing that's of, of great importance on both sides of that is sexual purity. And you know that's true, that it goes deep towards your soul. And that's Paul's priority, not only 1 Thessalonians, but certainly to 1 Corinthians chapter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And I'll, I'll read this for our edification, and this is what, how we will close. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12, Paul says, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Food for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. 
Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. It goes to the heart. It's it's nearest to us and doing the most damage. And he says in verse 19, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You friends are members of Christ, in Christ. You are temples of the Holy Spirit. You have been bought and redeemed purchased back from the slavery of sin and all that by the blood, the precious blood of the Lamb to set you free from the bondage of sin, to give you freedom in Christ. May the Lord bless you. May he lead you in the way to walk in purity before him that you would live pleasing to your God. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, we desperately need your help in our sick, twisted, and perverse culture that feeds our sick, twisted, and perverse hearts Lord, we need your rescuing, your newness. We need what you can accomplish for us, the power that you have that raised Christ from the dead, that you would raise up the fallen among us, that you would give hope and joy, restore faithfulness and obedience, that we would know your place.